Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, the Shadi Nabhan podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate your support. I appreciate your loyalty. And thank you for being part of today's podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting uh, a colleague, a dear friend, and an amazing investigator, researcher, and a human being, uh, Dr. Tanios Bikai Saab, although we will call him Tony for easier pronunciation and spelling. Tony is a professor of medicine and oncology. He is at the Mayo Clinic Cancer Center. He is the lead and the uh, director of the entire GI oncology program at the Mayo Clinic Cancer Center across all of the sites. But he resides in the beautiful state of Arizona where there's always sun. And apparently they had snow a few days ago and they went panicky. He is also the uh, medical director of the Cancer Clinical Research Office, as well as the vice chair and section chief for medical oncology in the Department of Internal Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. He also serves as the consortium chair for the Accrue Research Network. And you're going to hear from Tony about what the Accrue Research Network is. I think this is really a fascinating endeavor that he leads with uh, many colleagues. But uh, hopefully you, you will see what I'm talking about. So I've asked Tony to come on the show, and he generously accepted my invitation to really keeps us updated on the ASCO GI. ASCO GI took place in mid-January, 2021. It was a virtual meeting because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And there was several presentations that may have had a clinical impact. So I really wanted to update the listeners, whether you are a general oncologist, whether you're a family member, a patient, if you have an interest in GI oncology, what does Dr. Saab think of the most clinically impactful abstracts that were presented during the virtual ASCO GI meeting? So uh, hopefully you will enjoy this episode and you will learn more about GI oncology and what was uh, presented. I want to make sure that I plug the show by asking you to find us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, all podcast outlets that you possibly could have your hands on. Please refer a friend or a colleague and let them know about the podcast. Subscribe to the show, rate the show, write a brief review. I would be forever grateful. Without further ado, Dr. Tony Saab from Mayo Clinic exclusively on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Well, it's really a pleasure of mine to host uh, a dear friend and a colleague, an award authority in the GI oncology uh, arena, Dr. Bikai Saab from Mayo Clinic. He'll introduce himself in a little bit. And I learned from Tony more than I would like to admit. Uh, most of the things I've learned, though, from him have nothing to do with GI oncology, frankly. He's, he's you know, but, but we're not going to talk about this uh, today. Tony, it's really a pleasure to be uh, with you and to have you on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. I know that you are swamped with work and you were actually taping this about a week after the ASCO GI meeting and you're on service and all of these things. So we're very appreciative that you're going to take um, 
uh, about uh, 40, 45 minutes of your schedule to talk to us about um, ASCO GI and updates. Just for the folks who are listening and getting to know you for the first time, if there's just you, just tell them about you and, and what you do and and how do you end up doing a GI oncology and, and where you are? And how do you divide your work between research, clinical, and just a little bit about you? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Shadi. It's always a great pleasure to be with you. And we're all busy doing different things, uh, but it's, it's, it's quite a bit of fun to be able to sit with you. This is a, a, a little bit more serious than our usual sits, sit down. <laughs> so, so enjoy. So, you know, so for folks who, 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 who may not know my, uh, my trajectory. So right now I'm at the Mayo Clinic. I uh, practice in the beautiful campus in Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona. You know, it's it it, it actually snowed in Arizona yesterday. Believe it or not, in say, Phoenix. I saw, yeah. I saw your photo on Twitter. It snowed. Yeah. Were you were you did you were you nervous? I mean, did you see something white coming from the sky? What did you do with yourself? I I don't know. I you know I forgot what this stuff looks like. <laughs> Uh, you know, the kids were very excited about it. They they were like, I, I, you know, leave it up to the kids. They had their sleds, and they, they, even though it was like a little patch of snow, and they were throwing snowballs, and they did a little uh, snowman. Uh, I mean, just unbelievable. It was just a tiny bit of snow, so that that, that got them all excited. A, I know you own sleds in Arizona. No, well, this oh Arizona, not maybe Phoenix. It's not particular. You go a couple of hours into Flagstaff, you can use it. You go four hours, you know, eastward. You can use it. It's a Arizona is a fascinating state. Uh, it it has a lot of great. Uh, uh, you, you, you frankly have like multiple microclimates in 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 one state. So okay. you know, next time you visit down here, you'll 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 see more of it, hopefully. But anyway, so I'm uh, you know I'm I'm uh, I'm a professor uh, at Mayo Clinic, College of Medicine and Science. I also lead the whole. GI cancer program across the enterprise. So I really wear quite a few hats. I lead the research, uh, the ACRU Research Consortium. You know, I also lead the clinical research transformation team, co-lead it for, for Mayo Clinic. You know, also do a lot of a lot of things locally at the leadership level. Uh, and, you know, in my, uh, the, the, in my, of course, you know, clinical time, I see only GI cancer patients. The, the way, you know, my time is structured is about, 30 to 40 percent clinical, uh, and the rest is is pretty much mostly research and 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 about 10 15 percent administration, which you know as you can imagine is the least fun out of all. The best part of the job is of course being able to take care of patients. Tony, for folks who you mentioned the accrue network, can you just tell listeners like just um, in just one minute or so what that is? Because I know you you know you lead this, and I'm always intrigued by it, but I, I want listeners to know what that network, what it is. Yeah, so Accrue Research Network, uh, you know, was, was started in, in 2010. And essentially at the time where uh, NCCTG uh, merged with Alliance uh, and NCCTG was supported by Mayo Clinic and it served that part of the country. And then Mayo Clinic has this smaller Mayo Clinical Research Consortium uh, so some of these efforts came together uh, and, and built essentially the nucleus for uh, ACRU. ACRU stands for Academic and Community Cancer Research United. So it was meant to be essentially a research consortium. Uh, started with about 30 to 40 practices, primarily, you know, legacy practices from NCCTG and others. Small group. 
And uh, the goal was to essentially uh, ensure that there is adequate research representation that goes into the community, into the community that, that, that traditionally has been attached uh, to the Mayo system. And it continued to grow. And then I took over the leadership about a couple of years ago, the leadership for the whole consortium. And since then, I mean, we're, we've grown to about 120, 130 institution and, and practice. In fact, we have about more than 550 treating sites. Uh, so it, it has become a big, big, large consortium. And about 60% of our sites are actually community, community sites. And uh, the 40% uh, are academic sites. I mean, you name it, every large academic center is part of a crew. Uh, and our goal is, frankly, to do, two th to, to do two main things. One, to ensure that you know, we are able to build uh, practice-changing research questions integrated into our research. So scientifically solid and valid, but but you know we're not just looking for a small IIT that you know uh, 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 an investigator in a university center would love to you know have a paper out of. No, we're looking. We build research to change practice. We participate in research that's meant to change practice, and we facilitate research not just to include all our you know academic sites, but also ensure that. You know, we have uh, a good, a good, uh, a good representation in our community sites. In fact, our board of directors split 50-50 between community representation and academic representation. And every committee of ours has a Mayo lead, an academic non-Mayo lead, and then a community lead. So community practices are represented at leadership levels, at multiple levels. Because we know that most of the cancer patients are seen in community practices, yet research is really not well conducted in the community centers just because they're not well supported. Um, and ACRU has, has built a system uh, where we actually end up uh, taking over the whole administrative task to help uh, these community practices get access to research. Because we know our patients. We want to reach the patients anywhere they are. So this has built up nicely and continue to build. So we have very strong committees uh, that continue to build the, you know, to build up the practice. And we, GI, of course, has been one of the main uh, uh, drivers for now, and and we're building others. But in GI, you know, we've taken some 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 large, some large, uh, uh, you know, elements into 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 research. One of our largest uh, platforms is this Colomate platform. Uh, as an example, where a crew wants to be. And Colomate, I think, is one of those transformational studies, uh, at least we think, uh, that will change how we treat colon cancer in the future. So Colomate takes essentially, uh, um, we plan to over the next five years at least, to screen close to 5,000 patients uh, with colorectal cancer, uh, either through tissue, uh, next generation sequencing, or, or, and or liquid. And at multiple points, we will collect tissue, uh, we will co collect blood, but, but even in some studies, even tissue. And we essentially take those patients and assign them to multiple baskets that are included into, these, into this larger platform. We started with three, now we have about you know, uh, eight to 10 uh, uh, arms and, and more coming. Uh, we have investigators from across 16 sites that are involved in Colomate, and we're thinking even about 
expanding our uh, uh, screening platform uh, to more than just the 16 sites to multiple community sites as well. Regionally, uh, we've been very strategic about picking sites so they're in proximity of a lot of uh, of a lot of these sites that that are under a crew. And frankly, we cover pretty much the west to east, north to south, uh, in terms of institutions. And that will facilitate essentially answering uh, some of these questions, you know, from HER2 amplification to BRF mutations to RAS mutations, you know, to EGFR rechallenge to BRF non-V600A, EGFR amplification, FGFR alterations. I mean, you name it, and then we have some uh, uh, studies in there that uh, essentially focus on on uh, on no target, so essentially non 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 target driven, and that's the model we want to build actually into other committees. We want this to go into breast, into lung. Wow. Uh, we're wow. doing it already in pancreas and biliary. So, so Accru is this this you know this large research consortium that started, you know, was with with ideas. Uh, uh, with an idea to become big, and now is is is, is a large consortium. Ultimately, we want to expand um, even further internationally. the the point The point is that you know this this is a partnership between Mayo Clinic and other academic centers and community practices, but also a partnership between investigators and industry. You know, unlike cooperative groups, we're not funded by NCI. We're funded primarily by industry. There's support coming from Mayo for some of the infrastructure, and we have some philanthropic support uh, that supports, for example, you know, our Colomate platform, at least the platform, screening platform. So we're very grateful for a lot of the donors from, you know, and, and philanthropy support from, from Mayo donors uh, to make this happen. But at the at the end of the day, uh, you know, we we are, uh, you know, in in some ways, when you think about this partnership, you get the intellectual capacity that comes with all these institutions that are represented from Mayo, MD Anderson Memorial Sloan, USC, you know, uh, uh, Ohio State, uh, and 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 lots of others, Duke, UNC, you know, and others as well, and then community partnerships, and this is where most of the patients are being seen, and then industry that essentially wants to really work with large consortia. That's really amazing. And um, that's, I mean, that, that's, that's a huge initiative. It's like this organic growth that you guys did uh, over the past 10 years. So you seem like you, you're doing a lot of things, juggling several hundred balls, but um, uh, I think maybe having ASCO GI as a virtual platform uh, taking over, you didn't have to travel. How did that feel? Because we're going to talk about um, some of the highlights that you really viewed as very clinically relevant. And we can divide this in colorectal, for example, pancreas and other, or lower GI, upper GI, whatever you really think, you're the yeah, expert yeah. here. But I want you to focus a little bit more, Tony, onto the the things that you really feel have a lot of clinical application for uh, patients and and um, and physicians. I'm sure there's a lot of research that may be preclinical or not ready for clinical use. So I'll leave yeah. it to you how we should divide this. Maybe we'll start with whatever uh, into segments like uh, upper GI, lower GI, and other. Yeah, just... yeah, yeah. No, I got you. I mean, you know, if it's not clin clinically relevant, it 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 you know it it means nothing uh, other than just an interesting idea. The virtual platform is is reasonable. I I don't I'm not particularly fond of it, although I, I know that we're trying to do the best 
uh, out of a situation, uh, this pandemic situation at this point of time. You know, the, the, the one thing about this virtual platform is it's convenient. Uh, you know, you're, you're not, you don't have to travel for it. But one thing that's missing is essentially, you know, uh, when, you're, when you're sitting listening to an oral presentation or a discussion, you're sitting with colleagues and there are some discussions that ensue face to face, you know, around the time of the discussion and then after. Uh, but there's also, you know, the camaraderie of, of uh, you know, seeing colleagues, being able to have a dinner, a nice drink with them, uh, being be able to connect with other folks. There was a long, uh, a long gone study that uh, 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 that was done, I think, by NOCR. This was, you know, an organization that used to essentially have these uh, these gatherings for physicians and and between industry and physicians and discuss ideas. But they they did a survey of of of, of practitioners. And, and that survey, I think, was presented, and I, I don't think it was ever published. Physicians overall, you know, uh, 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 quote, were quoted uh, or were found to appreciate essentially face-to-face meetings. And in the oncology business, in the cancer business, uh, you know, we do, we do lead tough, tough lives. We're, we're dealing with very sick patients. We're dealing with the dying. Uh, you know, it's, not, it's, not, it's a tough job. It's a tough job. It's a it's a wonderful job. I love it. I wouldn't do anything else. I mean, you tell me, you know, you come back in ten different lives, and I'll do the exact same thing. But that face to face, that capacity to be able to commiserate or to be able to enjoy a nice dinner or drink with a with a with a colleague or with a bunch of colleagues was actually a great satisfier and quality of life, uh, you know, uh, uh, a positive aspect of it. So you know, this this. I know a lot of folks are saying, you know, I, I just would love for this to continue to be virtual or some mixture of it. Uh, I actually beg to differ. <laughs> I think the virtual aspect of it needs to stay somewhat for those who may not want to travel. But for most of us, I know that this human contact is very important and the capacity to actually be able to discuss things face to face are extremely valuable. Uh, and the capacity to be able to, you know, share not necessarily just science, but share experiences and how, you know, we go about our days, um, you know, cannot be replaced by the virtual world. So that's it. That's a little, little. I I agree. And I, I'm sad to say that ASCO will be virtual as well. So I was planning on taking you out to a very nice dinner, but now, you know, I, 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 no, 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 no. you still are going to take me out for dinner because you know, what's going to happen. I'm coming. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm going to actually have the virtual meeting from a hotel room and we're going to go out to dinner. We'll, we'll have the virtual <laughs> In meeting. In Chicago. Absolutely. All right. So tell us okay. about colorectal. What's going on in the colorectal area at ASCO GI? So, you know, colorectal and, and, uh, and leading into ASCO GI plus ASCO GI, as you know, ASCO GI, you know, tends to update, um, you know, quite a bit uh, the data that may have been presented elsewhere. Um, and, and just, you know, brings things in perspective. I mean, that's the, the main goal. It's a more of a multidisciplinary meeting. But I think in colorectal, there's really, you know, along the lines of what we uh, a little while ago discussed, you know, how we're breaking down colon cancer into all these, all these buckets uh, through Colomate. You know, I think the two aspects of ASCO GI that, that are incredibly relevant to practice are, of course, Keynote 177. And Keynote 177 was the study, and it was already presented as a plenary at ASCO. You know, we've seen updates 
and at a high, very high level. I mean, this is a this is a study that essentially took patients with metastatic colon cancer, untreated, with MSI high disease, randomized to uh, uh, pembrolizumab uh, versus uh, versus chemotherapy of choice. You know, the updated results continue to suggest the same: progression-free survival, double. You know, higher response rate than chemotherapy. But I think the most important aspect of of, of what's happening with pembrolizumab is even after four years, there's about 35 to 40% of the patients. So about, you know, a little bit more than one third of the patients that continue to be progression-free and alive. You know, what does that mean? That means essentially that those are patients that, and I don't use that word loosely, that are probably cured from their stage four cancer. Now this is, we understand this is two to 3% of all uh, metastatic colon cancer, uh, colorectal cancers. But I mean, two to 3% is not an insignificant number of patients. And about one third of, if not more of those patients are actually technically cured. And we, the responses, as we know, you know, continue uh, uh, to, to, to show, uh, uh, you know, improvement over time just because of the nature of immune therapy. Uh, but I think that transforms how we do it. And, you know, the question is, of course, we haven't reported yet on survival. And the reason why survival, which is a co-primary endpoint, may in some folks, you know, suggest that it may look similar in both arms because all, everyone on chemo or most everyone will end up cross, you know, uh, will end up in a crossover because this study was designed as a crossover study, crossing over to pembrolizumab. And so survival may be about the same. My argument, though, is that if you hit biology early, you're more likely to see a survival benefit. So I wouldn't be surprised if the pembrolizumab arm will also win on survival, although the delta may not be as impressive as the progression-free survival because a lot of folks will get it later, but we'll see where it goes. But there's definitely so, no... Let, let me ask you this, though. Yeah. Is, is there any patient with... I mean, based on what you told me, I'm very intrigued... If you have a metastatic colorectal cancer patient with MSI mm high, -hmm. is there any reason today in 2021, January, February, to use chemotherapy first line? No. And he, here's the, and, and, and again, you know, someone may argue the opposite uh, about certain cases, but I haven't actually given a patient with MSI high disease that I diagnosed in first line, uh, you know, prior to any therapy. So if patients come to me fresh, and I have their MSI high status for the last two years. So even if before Keynote 177, I shifted my practice to first line. And not just for colon, but for gastric, for anywhere I see an MSI high. And the reason for this is the data in the refractory setting is very convincing. You cure patients. You cure patients, which means you know they may never need or see chemotherapy in their lifetime. So why would I do that to them? Why would I give them chemotherapy first? How long would you is Pembro given until disease progression, or there's a set time? So two years, but I think it's an artificial time because even if you look at the curves, you frankly see the plateau around one year. So you may not need to give it more than one year. But that said, you know the way the study was designed is two years. I can tell you I have examples of patients who actually. Uh, I have one particular patient with pancreas cancer who she went for nine months on pembrolizumab with MSI high pancreas cancer, a rare instance, uh, complete response, and then developed some weird neuropathy, demyel demyelination, uh, autoimmune demyelination, 
uh, and we had to stop it completely. And five and a half years later, she remains in CR, wow. pancreas. And, and, and so that tells you that we may not, frankly, need the two years. It's difficult to say, but I suspect it's probably less than that. So I wouldn't be upset if someone, you know, for whatever reason ends up dropping off after nine to 12 months because of toxicity or some other reason. I still, I, I still think that they will get probably the same level of benefit. Uh, the other, uh, you know, the other, the other relevant question, and, and there was some, uh, uh, you know, some discussion about this at ASCO GI, is the updated data with ipilimumab and nivolumab. Now, this was not a randomized study. In, in first line, MSI high metastatic colorectal cancer. It was a single arm phase two study. And the response rates look, uh, look impressive. I mean, they're close to about 60%. And, and the OS and the PFS all look, again, quite impressive. But it's a single-arm study, and, and it doesn't establish a proof of concept, in my viewpoint, that dual checkpoint inhibitor is better than one. Now, you know, some folks say historically, well, look, you know, these numbers look a little bit better than single agent. And my argument is, unless I see a randomization, I, I am not buying into this argument. And here, here's the point. I mean, think about it. Today, I'm in my clinic. I get a 28-year-old patient with MSI high colorectal cancer performance status of one. What do you think I'm going to put that patient on? Epinevo. If I had the study, I'm not going to put them off study on. On the other hand, if I have a patient who is 75 years old, performance status three, okay, what am I going to put them on? single agent. So you already introduced a bias. So this patient population is much better picked. So I, I you know, I, I think that there may still be a role for dual checkpoint inhibitor in, the, in, in, in uh, some, some patients. Those patients who may go on single agent PD-1 will have a nice response for stable disease, uh, you know, for four to six months and then progress. And then you may reconsider uh, you know, or, or you make, what I would do is I would actually go for chemo, skip, skip a line, and then may go back to the dual checkpoint inhibitor. That's the only time I would actually go from single to double. And that's based on some data from melanoma and from other cancers as well. Uh, so this is not made up data per se, although it's made up in, in colorectal cancer. But it's rare to see that patient. For most patients, I don't think you need the dual checkpoint. Remember, more toxicities especially in these COVID times, you want to avoid a lot of these toxicities and more costly. And frankly, I don't see a significant benefit. You got me curious, uh, Tony, when we talk about the MSI high and how effective um, Pembro or IO therapy checkpoint inhibitors to that. Is this being looked at in MSI high early stage disease, stage three disease in the adjuvant setting to replace Folfox, for example? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's, yeah, the answer is yes, but not to replace Folfox. And so there's a study through uh, the cooperative groups called Atomic, and soon uh, I think Germany will be part of that study, which is looking specifically at stage three. And uh, uh, MSI high stage three, which, which as you know, you know, with the earlier stages, MSI high is actually much more represented. Uh, and it's a better prognostic factor than in the later stages. And it makes sense. Biologically, it makes sense, uh, right? I mean, if you have MSI high, uh, you're more likely to be checking the tumor 
uh, from metastasizing, and so it presents earlier and stays early stage. And so those patients end up with a better prognosis. And the late metastatic, if you can escape that checkpoint, that check that comes with, uh, you know, with MSI, uh, with MSI high, and your tumor is unchecked and metastasizes, that means yeah, it's pretty aggressive. That's why it's poorer prognosis. But so atomic is actually looking at st stage three, and patients will be randomized to receive, uh, you know, Folfox versus uh, Folfox plus atezolizumab, and then followed by atezolizumab. So that study hopefully will answer the question whether you know there's a role for these agents in earlier lines of therapy. Uh, it hasn't gone to stage two because stage two MSI high represents such a uh, an incredibly uh, positive, you know, prognostically favorable group of patients is that you probably don't make uh, much of a difference with treatment. I wish Atomic had a, an arm with only checkpoint inhibitor, you know? Because oh, absolutely. Right? Oh, absolutely. I think, I think, I mean, we know that in the adjuvant setting, we do over-treat some patients because we benefit the population yeah. at large. So it really, I mean, what you mentioned about the stage four disease, it's... Um, I wish someone, you don't think anybody is going to look at checkpoint inhibitor alone in the adjuvant setting? Station? Well, I suspect it will happen. If, if the study is negative, then it's a mute point, right? But if the study is positive, then you have to ask the question. You know, the, 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 the challenges, the challenges, frankly, Shadi, is when you're, when you're looking at a very prognostically favorable group of patients, it's very difficult to show uh, a huge difference. Right, or right. even a, even a small difference, frankly, and so there's a challenge with these types of studies, and and you know I've seen so I've seen patients with nine to ten centimeter tumor that were stage two, and you think like how did this tumor never never invade the lymph node? And I had a particular patient actually was very interesting, and we checked MSI MSI it was microsatellite stable. And, you know, we were lucky we had, you know, we had a, a, a study uh, with an next generation sequencing platform that essentially, you know, allowed us to, 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 you know, to do screening on any patient regardless of stage. So this patient was stage two. And I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to send your tumor since you're not going to pay, pay for that. So the tumor mutational burden was 197 wow. and ends up being a Paul E. That explains, I mean, you know, that, that tumor was so big and yet has not metastasized, has not gone to the lymph nodes. So it was in check. Uh, so do you make a difference for this patient if you give, you give him chemotherapy or, uh, um, you know, uh, or, or immune therapy? I don't know. I'm not sure you do. And so the question, of course, that follows Atomic. Atomic is, is going to be the first proof of concept. And I agree with you. I wish, you know, there was a, you know, a TESO only arm. Uh, and I'm not sure you need chemotherapy, you know, with, with any of the MSI highs, you know, five FU is of course, doesn't, doesn't seem to work there. And there were hints, you know, from some studies in the past, large databases that oxaliplatin may actually do add value. But I, I, I sincerely think that those, those, those tumors really don't care as much about chemotherapy for the most, some, some do, some, some do, but, but, but frankly, those that do, and don't do as well with PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors, um, may not do as, as well, period. Yeah. Anything else in the colorectal area, whether it's stage four, stage three, 
anything else or should we move to uh, upper GI? Yeah, maybe a quick word. I mean, there are a number of other things, but 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 maybe uh, maybe irrelevant for another discussion. Uh, but but there is certainly this emerging field of circulating tumor DNA or uh, cell-free DNA uh, in the setting of of minimal residual disease and and trying to to understand, you know, the value of measuring, you know, those that remain positive after surgery and even adjuvant chemotherapy. Versus the not there was a there was a large study uh, that essentially confirmed the previous findings that to this point you know all we understand about MRD positive or negative is its prognostic value but there are studies that are being built around asking the questions whether acting on that value so let's say patient gets surgery um, and then followed by chemotherapy and remains MRD positive do you you know, do yeah. you get them screened, you know, uh, more than usual? What, what about the patient who actually ends up being an MRD negative with a 30% miss rate? You know, do you just sleep on your laureates or so? So there's still a lot more to understand, but I think this is an emerging field and, and it's, it's very clearly uh, um, moving us in a good direction. Uh, but mostly, I think at this point of time remains mostly experimental. So I think that's in colorectal. I mean, there's also other targets, you know, BRF, HER2, and others all looking promising, but that'll be for another discussion. The other, the other study, so moving on now away from colorectal, uh, I think moving now to the world of HCC. So liver cancer has seen quite a bit, mostly around the world of immune therapy. So as you know, there's, there's been uh, data now uh, more than a year old with atezolizumab and bevacizumab, so PDL1 inhibitor plus a VEGF inhibitor, that really transformed, you know, our first line practice in, in HCC. It won over sorafenib. At the time, uh, survival was not reported, uh, but we PFS looked more favorable, especially the hazard ratio. There was a nice tail. Uh, their response rate, you know, looked looked favorable, and we had updates on the response rate and on uh, on the survival. So PFS looks very stable. Uh, response rate now measures higher, which is, again, something we always see with these immune therapies is some of the responses come later. So it was around one-third of the patients with a, with a response. Uh, so that's quite solid. Uh, and then the survival uh, was close to, nine, was actually 19.2 months with sorafenib 13.4. So the delta is actually one of the largest deltas ever ever described in, in HCC in a phase three study. Uh, so this study essentially hits every point, OS, BFS, response rate, quality of life, uh, toxicity improved. Uh, so every piece of, of, of uh, efficacy and, and uh, information actually came favorable and continued to look favorable after a whole year of update on the study. So atezolizumab and bevacizumab is now our you know, standard reference first line. Uh, in, in, in liver cancer. You know, the challenge is, of course, that the, all the first-line studies that we have on hand, regardless of whether TKI or, or, or uh, <clears throat> at least the large randomized studies, excluded Charles pub and Charles pub c patients. Charles pub c understandably, I mean, those patients should not be treated, but Charles pub at least seven, you know, good performance status. Uh, I'm not sure about eight. But these are a lot of the patients we see in clinic, and we don't have a good answer for them. 
And we often project from the results of, of these studies and, and, and start using in Charles BV7. Uh, so we don't have that that answer for Charles BV7. The other challenging question is, all right, you get your patient now in clinic, we've adopted atezolizumab, vivacizumab as a first-line treatment. What do you do when the patient fails atezolizumab and vivacizumab? We don't have any study that has an approved agent in the second line that looked at atezolizumab as the first line. You know, they were all in sorafenib failure. So how do, we, how do we do it now? So we, we certainly struggle with this. We had recently uh, a paper with, with Bassam Sumbul as a first author uh, that was published in JAMA Oncology that essentially looked at the network meta-analysis, so all indirect comparisons, and certainly confirmed that atezolizumab and bevacizumab should be the first-line standard, and so confirmed, even when compared to Nevo indirectly and others, uh, you know, certainly it is our standard. Uh, but our second line is actually uh, 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 ends up la laying into cabozantinib or regorafenib. You know, one could argue back and forth about remesirumab. But in my clinic, actually, it's cabozantinib primarily, and for some, maybe regorafenib. And the reasoning for this is, and I see that quite a bit, there's quite a bit of confusion about, you know, what TKI should I use? Can I use lenvatinib? Can I use sorafenib? I mean, you know, theoretically, you can use whatever you want. Uh, but in practical terms, when I look at sorafenib, you know, sorafenib has, and lymvatinib, they were really never rigorously tested in the setting of prior VEGF exposure, right? Rigorafenib, cabozantinib, I mean, they were uh, tested with prior sorafenib, which hits VEGF and others as well. So with bevacizumab, I am not sure lymvatinib, which is a very potent VEGF inhibitor, is a good idea. Sorafenib, I, I mean, I don't know how much it will perform. I know what regorafenib does. And cabozantinib actually has quite a bit of data in renal cell and, you know, hits Axel and CMET, which are both very relevant for the VEGF axis resistance. And theoretically, you know, could work well there. So our, you know, our paper, but also, you know, uh, from, from at least theoretical advantages, cabozantinib seems to make the most sense to me. And, and you know, somewhat regorafenib as well. Uh, in the second line. Do you think, uh, are you guys looking at cabozantinib moving first line now compared with uh, Bev and Atizo, or you think this is not like a priority question at this point, it, that the data in the second line is not that high that you would try to move it first line? Yeah, so, so, so I mean, these are very relevant questions. There's a study, Cosmic 312, which essentially is looking at atezolizumab and cabozantinib versus sorafenib versus cabozantinib. So it's asking a little different question, but somewhat, you know, trying to separate what, what is the contribution of cabozantinib. The reality is that all these TKIs, when you combine them with PD-1 and PDL1 inhibitors, they end up being much more toxic. Uh, atezobev has the advantage of being the least toxic of them all. I mean, we've seen data with lenvatinib and pembrolizumab, which looks pretty good within the range of what you see with atezobev, and this is moving into phase three study as well. But the toxicities are certainly much more. And then when we think about our own patients in the U United States, maybe less relevant to other parts of the world, the co-pays for oral medications end up being incredibly prohibitive, that it makes much more sense for us, unless you know, uh, uh, these combinations end up being like so amazing that I cannot deprive my patients out of them, but I suspect not. 
just based on historical comparisons. So I don't see anything, frankly, at this point of time, replacing Atizubev on the short term, at least. There is one, one combo that may be interesting, uh, and that's for patients who may not be eligible for a VEGF inhibitor, it would make sense to consider a dual IO inhibitor, a dual checkpoint inhibitor. The problem is, of course, we don't have those studies yet. So there's one study called Himalaya, which will hopefully read out somewhere this year. We were thinking last year, but maybe this year, that is looking at Durvalumab and Trimalumab uh, versus, uh, versus uh, Durva versus Surafinib. There's another study, Checkmate 9DW, which is looking at Ipinevo versus Surafinib or Limvatinib. These studies may give us an idea about whether the dual checkpoint inhibitor may have a role. If negative, of course, you know, it'll be a disappointment. If positive, it'll be another alternative for those who may not receive VEGF. So that is one element where I see, you know, uh, perhaps uh, something uh, uh, replacing for some patients at Tizobev in the first line. But beyond that, you know, I, I, and I look at a number of the study and I don't see anything that's going to be major for now. In the second line, the question of IO beyond IO is being addressed and will be addressed actually through our accrued research uh, consortium will have uh, a large study that will look at, you know, how, how can we continue the benefits of IO beyond first line. So that's coming. And I know that there are some worldwide efforts to look at that as well. So this, this is a, an interesting question, I think, from, from a lot of aspects. That's amazing. Let's move a little bit to the stay in the belly and talk about anything in the pancreas, anything in that uh, area before we move to upper GI or... Yeah, so pancreas, you know, is, is, is the biggest challenge and remains the biggest challenge. So we know that the Polo study, you know, that was presented about a couple of years ago, again, in another plenary session, uh, although, you know, I'm not sure it deserved to be in a plenary session, but it, it was, <laughs> and published in a nice journal. Um, you know, it was, it was an interesting study because it essentially asked a very important question. Um, you know, do, can we uh, essentially use what they call a maintenance strategy? You start with a platinum compound, you consolidate your response, and then you get randomized to olaparib or, or placebo. Well, I mean, I wouldn't call that maintenance because maintenance suggests that you take the, the regimen and you take off a couple of components and you keep with, a small, with one of the components. Uh, this is more like a switch strategy, meaning, you, you know, you find your best responders and you switch them to an agent that you know essentially is likely to work in that setting. So if you're platinum sensitive, olaparib is going to work, simply. Yeah. Uh, so you, you, you're already setting yourself to win. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure you needed this study to say that I'm going to win, but, you know, it was, it was positive, not surprising for PFS, but we got at least at ASCO GI you know, a survival update, which looked pretty much dead even, meaning no survival benefit. Oh, I didn't know that. The Polo yeah. study showed no survival benefit on the update. No. no. I, think no. You, I think you predicted, I think we had a little bit of yeah. conversation about six months ago, and you were very yeah. critical of the trial. And I remember you telling me that switch strategy is likely not going to lead to anything. So was that the first time they presented survival uh, data? Yeah. I mean, they presented some preliminary survival data 
previously, which did not suggest, uh, you know, that the trends were looking favorable, but they were still hoping that ultimately maybe there'll be a, a difference, and it, it hasn't. And of course, you know, the, the argument is this was not a primary endpoint because, you know, a lot of the folks who will go on the placebo will ultimately switch back to maybe another PARP inhibitor. But frankly, you know, I mean, PARP inhibitors overall are not necessarily a, a trip in the park by themselves. I mean, they have their toxicities, they have their cost. And at the end of the day, you know, they haven't really moved the field uh, significantly forward in pancreas cancer yet. If you look at the single agent response rate for PARP inhibitors in pancreas cancer, it's 15%. In ovarian cancer, close to 50%. And in, in pancreas, it's not even long lasting. So PARP inhibitors mean different things in pancreas than they mean in ovarian. And we have to be cognizant of that. You know, don't expect miracles at this point of time. Now, you know, taking this in a different direction, and there's a SWOGS Alliance study that's looking at, you know, olaparib plus pembrolizumab in this setting, which may actually enhance this further. You know, we have studies looking at rational combinations of rocaparib and nanoliposomal antican that we want to take in pancreas cancer, I can take in advantage of the pharmacokinetics of naliri, which are more favorable than IRI, to combine with, with rucapari. But all these things, hopefully, will continue to move the field forward. So although polo, in my viewpoint, applies to only a few patients with BRCA2 and BRCA1 alterations, uh, I think it establishes a great proof of concept that we can move the field forward with target strategies in pancreas cancer you know, a disease that didn't have any targeted strategies prior to that. So that's the positive from Polo. The negative is that, again, you know, I don't think I'm excited about exposing all my patients to Olaparib when I think that most of them probably won't need it in this setting. You know, uh, Dr. Vinay Prasad, who's very active on Twitter, was very critical of Polo. So uh, mm -hmm. see his comment to the to this yeah. podcast episode. But like today, I mean, after ASCO-GI, your management of pancreas cancer patients is about the same as prior to ASCO-GI right now. About the same. I don't think it changed much, unfortunately. There was also an earlier stages, an alliance study, uh, preoperative, you know, that suggested that there is no role for SBRT uh, neoadjuvantly. In fact, you know, there was a futility analysis which terminated the arm with SBRT. Fulfirinox looked reasonable, as you would expect it. Uh, you know, gemcitabinapaclitaxel is another option so from the SWOC study that we presented at ASCO. Uh, but I think I think this is this is, although it doesn't change practice, it consolidates some of the practices that exclude radiation from neoadjuvant strategies in pancreas cancer. You know, folks continue to argue the same argument. SBRT may be the problem. It could have been that I should have used chemotherapy and radiation. And then we go to a lot of the studies with radiation pancreas cancer, and I haven't seen a single randomized positive study for radiation of meaningful status. Yeah. And we keep on arguing that, you know, that we still need to ask the question, and we may need to ask it a little differently. You know what I'm getting with this. You yeah. keep on asking the same question 10 times, and it's still negative. Guess what? It is negative. It reminds me no, of- No, uh, Tony. No, no. We ask it number 11. You get with the program. Well, you know, that reminds me of, of uh, you know, my, my great aunt has a joke. She said, you know, it was about, you know, a, a cousin who, who got married like four times. She said, you know, the first time he said that the woman was not, was not really good. The second time, you know, she didn't treat him well. The third time she said, stop. 
stop. The first time it was her, the second time it was her, but the third time, come on. You see the trend here? <laughs> that is funny. It's you. It's yeah. you. <laughs> so radiation, you know, I, 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 at this point of time, I am not sure, you know, what, what should we, I, you know, my, 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 my implies from this is that, you know, we, we really are hitting a, a, a tough patch for radiation pancreas cancer and, and one really needs to continue calling it experimental and not a standard. Can I ask you, in adjuvants, adjuvant pancreas, we're not talking metastatic right now. From an adjuvant perspective, it is standard of care to give adjuvant therapy for chemo. Chemotherapy, yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's do upper GI. But, but, but importantly, we are really moving everything neoadjuvantly now. We're rarely doing adjuvant therapy. Everything yeah. is moving up front. And that cannot be but overemphasized. Yeah. Okay. Upper GI. Yeah. So gastric and gastroesophageal cancers, you know, there have been some updates, mostly about quality of life from studies that were presented at ESMO, suggesting that we can move essentially PD-1 inhibitors to the first line. The data is pretty much all over the place in, in a positive way. Uh, meaning, you know, some studies used, used CPS-10, others used CPS-5. Um, others did not, you know, the Asian patients particularly seem to care less about PDL1 expression, meaning that they do well regardless of PDL1 expression. The squamous cell carcinoma seem to also care a little bit less about PDL1 ex expression. And then, you know, the two agents have been developed nivolumab primarily with CPS of five now, where Pembro is, is, is with CPS uh, of 10 plus chemotherapy in the first line. So we're moving immune therapy now to the first line. And I think one of the most transformational studies, frankly, is Nevo versus placebo in the adjuvant setting. So patients get you know, chemo radiation and then receive, uh, have resection, and then they go on immune therapy, regardless of PDL1 status, by the way, and they go to a placebo or nivolumab. The disease-free survival doubled, went from 11 to 22 months at the median. Uh, just, I, I mean, incredible, incredible outcome uh, that, I mean, I frankly look at it and I look at it, it looks very similar to what you see with Keynote 177, meaning the separation of the curves. Oh, again, weighting other, other parameters to read out, but I think the, 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 the transformational aspect of immune therapy in gastric and gastroesophageal cancers continue. Uh, and we see now this the, the immune, immune therapy overall, PD-1 inhibitors moving to first line and to the adjuvant setting with just amazing results. So, you know, very exciting times for, for gastroesophageal cancers uh, and immune therapy across the board. That's great. Two quick questions, and I know you're, you're yeah. I don't want to keep you late, but uh, anything in cholangiocarcinoma or anal cancer? So in cholangiocarcinoma, you know, we continue hammering on the on the issue of FGFR uh, inhibitors. And there was data that you know uh, from a, a drug called infigratinib, an, an FGFR inhibitor. And you know, for for uh, for a disclaimer, you know, we we this was the first FGFR inhibitors to be tested or to be reported out in in uh, in cholangiocarcinoma. And we essentially, I was a senior author on a paper that was published in JCO, which was the first, first proof of concept. I think that study just, you know, uh, uh, started the whole interest with FGFR inhibitors in, in cholangiocarcinoma. So it reported out on 100 
eight patients, I think, with FGFR2 fusions, uh, showing a response rate in one quarter of the patients and a very solid, uh, you know, uh, uh, survival outcomes. So this now uh, is uh, on track with the FDA. You know, pemigatinib was already approved in the same spate, FGFR2 fusions and cholangiocarcinoma. So this would be uh, hopefully the second approval, so infigratinib. Uh, moving into into uh, cholangiocarcinoma and FGFR2 fusions, Do, both these agents now are in phase three studies in the first line setting, comparing pemigatinib and in the other study infigratinib versus gemcitabine and cisplatin accruing currently. So that may move essentially, you know, for those 10-15% of patients with FGFR2 fusions and intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma may move these agents into the first line and replace chemotherapy, at least as a first starter. There are still a lot of things we need to learn about these FGFR inhibitors. You know, most patients will progress ultimately. Why? You know, we have some hints about, you know, mechanisms of resistance that we can go after. But for now, uh, you know, we, we, we are excited that we have this. We have also IDH. Uh, and, and there was also presented, uh, you know, IDH mutations uh, with, uh, with Claridi. Uh, with ivocidinib and IDH uh, uh, mutated um, cholangiocarcinomas, 20% of patients have this, this mutation. And the survival benefit, again, this was a crossover design. So patients received uh, IVO versus placebo and then placebo, you know, uh, randomized or, or I'm sorry, crossed over to IVO. The survival benefit was not there. I mean, there was some separation of the curves and they did some finagling, statistical modeling, uh, uh, whatever you want to call it, you know, and they did show that if you didn't do the crossover, you may actually end up with a positive survival. I personally don't like these types of of uh, of statistical. I don't want to call them manipulations, but they're kind of manipulations. You know, you just keep on looking at the data the way you think it, it, it looks good. You know, it's like looking at a mirror and you keep on convincing yourself you look good, and ultimately you will look good. <laughs> And you know, not not again, not to undermine the fact that this this can change outcome for some patients uh, with the mutation, uh, but certainly not the home run. And hopefully, you know, we'll move to first line with chemotherapy and and improve outcomes as such. Look, I think we've we've covered everything. Uh, anything else I should have asked you about ASCO GI that you want to share with listeners? And I know you have a family obligation; we need to cut you loose. But anything else I may have missed? No, I think that covers at least the high points. I mean, there may be others as well, but but these, at least in my world, you know, were the high points. But basically what I learned, the take-home message here, if I keep looking at the mirror <laughs> 10 times, eventually I'll be okay. I like that. That's the take-home message. Yeah, keep on looking at the mirror, or, or even better, put my picture on your mirror. <laughs> you know, <laughs> with the GI oncology world have come so long. I still remember, I think, my first year of fellowship, yeah, literally the biggest question in GI oncology, Tony, was: Do we give five a few bolus? Bolus or do infusion? We give it twenty-four hour infusion. Do we give it uh, over five days? Do, like it was that was the panacea of GI oncology. Yeah. Unbelievable how things have changed. Well, listen, it's yeah. good for patients. It's good for investigators, and um, I'm very grateful that uh, you took time of your busy schedule to join us, my friend. Uh, thank you. Thank and you, I will take friend. you up on the offer that you'll do your virtual ASCO in Chicago virtually so I could take you out. By the hotel, so hopefully the city would open, I could take you to a restaurant. Or in Arizona, the city is already open and I can take you to a restaurant down here. <laughs> I'm coming over. Okay. 
Thank you, everyone. I appreciate you listening and I appreciate you taking the time of your busy schedule to be part of today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation I had with Dr. Saab about the ASCO GI meeting. I hope you learned a few things about what was presented and the clinical impact of the data and the abstracts on patients with GI oncology cancers. Special thank you to Dr. Saab and the team for really taking time of his busy schedule and being with us on the show. Let me know what you think about the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Send me an email to shadinabhan, oo at outlook.com or through my website, www.shadinabhan.com. You can also direct message me on Twitter at shadinabhan, that's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. And let me know what you think about this show on other episodes and also recommend uh, uh, topics uh, guests, and I promise that I will always listen to you, answer you, and accommodate your request if at all possible. And of course, uh, subscribe to the show, find the show on all podcast outlets, refer a colleague. And look, if you don't refer a colleague to the show, this means you've got no friends. And as I told you before, we don't want to really tell people that you have no friends. So let's make sure at least you tell a few friends about this podcast to make sure that they are aware that the healthcare unfiltered exists. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying that I really love from Christopher Hitchens. What can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. Until next time, take care.